Uh, let's turn to the Song of Solomon. And I'm going to look at pr- probably the first 14 verses of the chapter uh, is what we may get through. Quite often at night we, we break and have questions and discussion, and I'm not going to do that this evening. Uh, you'll see why, uh, for obvious reasons, in a moment. Um, but we will have opportunity to, to ask questions and, and to discuss things, because the whole book itself is one that a lot of Christians find very difficult. Now, there is a trend, and I, I didn't mean to be part of this, there's a trend to speak about the Song of Solomon, and everyone wants to do it, apparently, uh, because it's, at one level, it's a very, very unusual book in the Bible. It is a love poem. And depending on how you read the Hebrew, it's an erotic love poem. And for some people, uh, some people who are Christians, they think, ooh, don't like that. And for other people who are Christians, mainly younger people, they go, ooh, do like that. And let's see how far he dares go. Now that's, I know that that's the mentality that, that some of you have. Uh, and the answer is I'm, uh, I'm going to go no further than the book will go. And I may disappoint some of you in that respect as well. Because there's a, a fundamental principle. There's a problem with, un- with understanding this book. Um, previous incumbent of this church, Robert Murray McShane, preached on Song of Solomon loads. And he would never, ever have considered it a love song, except between Christ and the church. And he spiritualized it phenomenally. Um, so did the early church fathers. That was kind of been the traditional position. And there's kind of a reaction against that just now, especially between young, emergent, cool-looking ministers who don't wear ties and things like that. And they, they you know, say, hey, we can, we, can, we can talk about sex because it's okay with us. And they take the opportunity to do lots and lots of teaching in that respect. And I have a, I have a problem with both positions. I actually have a problem with McShane's position and I have a problem with what I will call, for those of you who know him, Mark Driscoll's position, or C.J. Mahaney, or people like that. Because there's no question at all when you look at the book, it is a love poem. There's no question that it speaks about many different aspects of human relationships, um, particularly uh, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, between a husband and wife. However, there's a fundamental principle that I would take from the scriptures, and that is that all scripture is God-breathed, is useful correction, rebuke, and so on, but also that all scripture does speak about Jesus Christ. When the two were on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opened up the scriptures, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them everything in the scriptures concerning himself. And I think it is perfectly legitimate to take this book at two levels, which is what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk uh, about what it's says in terms of the relationship between Solomon, as we believe it is, uh, the lover and the beloved, and you can, there are aspects that you can apply to that in terms of your own relationships. But it's also fair in the light of the teaching of Ephesians 5 and elsewhere to say, well, this is also about Christ and the church. So I'm wanting to have my cake and eat it. I want it to be both, uh, to see both. And I think it's legitimate to see it as both. Now, what we'll do is, uh, each time we look at this, uh, we're going to look at the text and what it says. I'm going to stick quite closely to the text, so if you've got a Bible, that would help, because 
I've listened to quite a lot of teaching on this and people wander off all over the place um, using it as an opportunity to, to teach lots and lots of different things, which may or may not be legitimate. But I'm, I want to try and keep to the text so that you can see this is where we're going and I'll try not to wander off in too many bypath meadows. I'm just a, a bit of brief background. It's written by Solomon and probably, we actually can probably date it to about the year 965 BC, so around 3,000 years ago. There's two main characters. There's King Solomon and there's the Shulamite girl. We're not 100% sure who she is, though um, speculation is always, of course, that if you know your story of King David, how there was a beautiful young Shulamite woman called Abishag, and she uh, became Solomon's uh, wife as well. And it's, the suggestion is that, that who is, this is referring to, though, it's not explicitly stated. Um, to give you a very brief overview of the book, it does follow a plot line. Some people think it doesn't. Some people think it goes around in circles. But the basic plot line is this. In chapter 1, it's the girl's first day in the palace of the king. At the end of chapter 1 through into chapter 2, they're out in the country. In chapter 3, it's the girl meditating on her fiancé, the first five verses. Then the next five verses are describing the wedding day. Chapter 4 into chapter 5 is the wedding night. Chapter 5, chapter 6 is their first fallout. Um, that's straight after the wedding night. Uh, uh, chapter 6 is they make up. Chapter 7 is a scene in the king's bedroom, and chapter 7 and cha chapter 8 is back to the countryside. So that's the kind of um, scenario of a poem. <coughs> it is a poem. Please remember it is a poem. Okay? Two things I, I want to say just as a, 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 as a basic thing as well. Oh, actually, no, that's rubbish. More than two things before, as in a kind of introduction. Firstly, no matter how you interpret this poem, and there are people who are trying to do this. In the context of the whole of Scripture, this is not teaching sexual intercourse before marriage. Some people argue that. I remember there was a vigorous dispute in the Free Church magazine, The Monthly Record, between, I think it was a man called Angus Smith, and I believe it was the editor then, Alec MacDonald. And Alec was arguing that this was a love poem, and Angus Smith was furious at that, saying it can't be a love poem because it would make, uh, it's all about adultery and so on. And it was, and it, I couldn't see that, how he, he, he got up to that at all. But there are people actually who argue that. And I think one of the things about this, this song is, is it is describing the relationship between a married man and a married woman. And this is a big, big difference in terms of our culture. And forgive me for being plain speaking in this, but it's a commonplace that in our culture, in our society, people regard people like me who believe that sex should be kept within the confines of marriage and you shouldn't have sex before marriage as just being completely off the planet weird. I um, give you an example of this. I'm a chaplain, as you know, in the University of Dundee and uh, they were advertising the university basically being, as being a good place to come and get drunk and to have sex and to do an occasional bit of study. That's to me how the advertising campaign came across. So I suggested to them that this wasn't the best way to encourage people to come to an educational establishment. And uh, I remember a fellow minister in the city saying to people, 
that that, that was ridiculously old-fashioned. And how would we expect to attract people to the church if we were going to have such old-fashioned views? Which was very, very interesting, because I couldn't care to hoots if it's old-fashioned in terms of what the Bible says. I have to say this to those of you who are younger and in the Christian Union. I've been involved with this Christian Union more or less since the day I came to Dundee for 17 years. And sometimes it's been better than others in this respect. But I'm utterly astounded that sometimes you meet people who come to church, who come to the Christian Union, who will sing about the love of Jesus, who will talk about witnessing and talk about evangelism. And yet when you get to know them and you get to talk to them, Sometimes they'll admit things like, well, I, I don't see why you shouldn't, uh, uh, forgive this very crude expression, but somebody actually said this to you, why you shouldn't try before you buy. Well, first of all, you're not buying. Secondly, it's completely unbiblical and ridiculous. But uh, the pressure that our society in terms of, of, of sex is just enormous. And I think the teaching here is really, really helpful. It describes itself, this book describes itself as the song of songs. Oh, sorry, the other thing I was going to say is a kind of introduction. One of the teachings in our society is that kind of like sex is everything. And I need to say this. Jesus was single, and he wasn't any less a human being because he was single. And this, this obsession that sometimes people have, for most people, they will get married and hopefully it will be a good and a, a happy marriage. Some people will get married and it will be awful. And some people won't get married and it will be awful. But it's possible to be single and to live a really happy and fulfilled and Christian life. It's not the be-all and the end-all. And I'm hoping as we, as we look at this that um, I hope nobody feels left out in that way. Anyway, this is a, it's called The Song of Songs. It's very modestly titled basically the best love poem of all. What it does, let me say something about the style. Um, what it does in terms of style, it describes love in terms of poetry, not techniques. Now, why is that important? Uh, I don't read Cosmopolitan, okay? But I did. I thought I'd go and have a look just to see what I was saying. So I'm sure I felt a bit embarrassed buying Cosmopolitan, you know, rather bought the Beano, but uh, anyway. Um, plus, it, it, I tell you what really bothers me about, not Cosmopolitan, but just 17 or just 16 or just 13 or whatever, from a very early age, from Emma Jane's age, you know, girls' magazines are full of techniques. How do you do this? And when you read some of the relationship books. And when you see some of the teaching that people are trying to put forward in schools, you start thinking, wait a minute, this is like an engineering course. This is like mechanics and techniques. What's happened in schools is the philosophical position of the baby boomers in the 1960s has been accepted as just the, the position. Sex is an appetite. All you've got to do is make it safe and show people how. But the context, and in particular, the whole idea of love, and the whole idea of making love, and the whole idea of the sacredness of physical sex, is, is, that's been grossly cheapened and degraded. 
And this song, what it does is it puts sex back in the context of where it should be, of love. It's not just an appetite. I will pretty well guarantee that the vast majority of people in this country are being brought up with the notion that it's just an appetite. And then what do you do with your appetites? Your appetites should be satisfied. But what if they're not satisfied? You go for something else, you go for something else, you go for something else. That, by the way, is one of the things uh, to do with pornography. It is uh, quite, quite astonishing, uh, the degree of pornography that there is in our society. And what pornography does, of course, is it never, ever satisfies. It always just gives, increases the appetite. 50 billion pounds, billion, not million, 50,000 million pounds was spent throughout the world last year on pornography. It's, it's an unbelievable. It's, it's the biggest industry. Pornography and prostitution is the biggest industry in the world. And it's, it's like, for me, it's like just waves and waves crashing upon our, our, our young people especially. Now, on the other hand, you get people who say, well, we don't want to talk about that. And I, I've told some of you this before, I was once asked to give a talk on things that could not be said from the pulpit. And the poor guy who phoned me up to speak at this youth fellowship, I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know. And I said, no, I don't. What do you mean? He said, you know. I said, no, what? He said, you know it. it. I said, what? <laughs> you know, and I just, and it was just, it was excruciating. Now, there is an embarrassment. There is a modesty that is perfectly acceptable, and there is an embarrassment that is Victorian prudery, and it's entirely wrong. And when we go through this song, I can't help but state the expressions that are here, and it does show us one thing. It shows us that God is concerned about the physical. God made us as human beings. Um, there's a huge argument in the early church fathers about whether Adam and Eve would ever have made love before the fall. It's a ridiculous argument. There's the, the whole aspect it's involved in that is just simply, this is the way that God made us. Now, and our, our sexual appetites, if you like, if you want to speak in those terms, that's an important part of people's lives, but not everyone's. Also, as we look at this, remember it's not wrong to talk about the human body, although we will use different terms. I mean, you, people smile when they read Song of Solomon because uh, even though what we're going to look at just now, you know, you say to your, your um, fiancé or your wife, you're like a horse. That doesn't translate all that well in, in my culture anyway. Maybe in your culture you can do that, but in my culture that doesn't translate. We use different language. But it's, you, can, you can translate as we go along. Let me say also about the characters, the three characters we mentioned, the Shulamites, the lover is Solomon, the friends are her friends, who are basically encouragers on her own. I, I, again, I apologize for being so old, but um, when I was a lot younger and you'd go to a dance, you'd always, basically girls hung around in groups. Now, I've noticed the boys do that now, but especially girls did. And... Um, that kind of expression, are you dancing, are you asking, I'm asking, well I'm dancing, that kind of thing. Basically the girl, if a girl liked you, she would get her friends to dance with you first, 
and they would then tell you that she liked you so that you would then go and ask her. You know, that's, so girls hunted in packs. That's the way it described. And that's, there's a sense in which that is happening here. The friends are really encouraging this uh, Shulamite woman, go get him. That, that is a rough translation of a lot of what they say. The characters are also quite young. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the woman first because um, astonishingly, actually, for this culture, she is first. She's the one uh, who speaks, first of all. Then we're going to look at the man, and then we're going to look at how the illustration works with Christ and his church. So let's look at the woman, um, various characteristics that are of this woman. And I'm going to suggest this, that if you are a, a young man and you're looking for a woman, that you should be looking for a woman like this. And if you're a woman, you should be looking to be like this. And vice versa, if you're a woman, looking for a young man and so on. Now, I also have to say at this particular stage, those of you who believe that you shouldn't be looking, go and read your Bibles. Because Scripture tells us, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. You've got to look. I think the biggest complaint I've had, I'm going to let out one or two secrets here. I'm never going to mention anyone by name, except John Cooper. And, no, <laughs> I'm never going to mention anyone by name. But I'm telling you this, the biggest complaint I've had from female, young females in my time in Dundee, in, in this congregation, has been, why are the men so passive? Why do they show no interest? You know, because they're all trying to be sensitive new men and look at But it was just uh, sometimes... I'll tell you another time what the men have said about the women, but that's, that was um, one thing. But here, we've got this woman, and one thing about her is very, very interesting. She's not the one who is passive. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She speaks. She speaks first and uh, is willing to talk. And you will find that in any kind of relationship, communication is enormously important. It's a girl who also, she, she has physical needs and desires, verse 2. She longs for the king's kisses. One of the commentaries has it, this is what lips are for. Lips are, it's great to have lips so that you can taste wine. That's what she says. Your love is more delightful than wine. But she actually wants to kiss him, and she, she expresses that. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There are a couple of things I would, I would say about that. And one, of course, it's not wrong at all to have physical uh, desire. The same way as it's not wrong to have uh, an appetite for food or, and so on. But it's what we do with that and how we do it. But within context, that's what's important. And here the context is clearly that, as, as we'll see, of commitment to one another. And within that, there's a, a, a strong physical attraction. That's really what the poem is saying. This, this is what, the, you know, at least one of the purposes of, of lips. You know, why did God make us this way? You know, he could have made it that people say, well, it's all about producing babies. God could have made us in a way that we could produce babies that didn't involve everything else. And it's, it's, it's the pleasurable aspect of it that sometimes surprises people. 
Let's take this comparison of wine and love in this way. I think our culture and our society has the buckfast view of sex and love. And that is cheap drink, as much as you can get, never mind the consequences. That's the notion that a lot of our young people, not just our young people, are, are being brought up with in terms of the view of, of, of sexuality and so on. The Christian view is not to say, no, we don't touch that. The Christian view is the champagne view. The Christian view is the absolute quality view. And that, I think, again, a lot of people don't grasp and don't understand that. The simple principle is God made us and he knows best how we work. So this lady is, is a woman, she's not afraid to speak and she's not afraid to articulate what she wants in terms of her relationship with her husband. Verse 4, it's an exclusive relationship. Take me away with you, let us hurry, let the king, let the king bring me into his chambers. She wants to go alone with him to a private place. I read this. I was trying to work out in my head if this is true, but it probably is. No one can kiss two people at the same time. And some of you are working thinking, oh, I could, I'll try that. Let's greet one another with a holy kiss after the service and see if you can do two at once. You know, some of you have probably got really weird lips that could manage, but um, what it, what she is saying here is that she, she, she identifies, no wonder the maidens love you. She's basically saying, all the women think you are great, but you're mine. Take me to your chamber. And there's an exclusivity involved in that. Others may acknowledge, but they cannot share. When you get married, um, Tim and Mary are getting married here next Saturday, and they'll stand and they'll make a commitment to one another, and the commitment is that they belong to one another and nobody else. Nobody else. She desires an exclusive relationship. And just, a, a, again, a, a simple practical point in that. If you're a young lady and you're going out with a guy and he says, well, I don't really want an exclusive relationship. I think we should have a more open one. Just drop him instantly. He's absolutely not worth it. And, and vice versa as well. That's why this whole idea, and, and, and it's... I struggle with this whole concept of what the Americans call dating. We used to call going out and when, you know, when are you going out and when are you not going out? Is it when you're holding hands? Ooh, that's, but I think part of it in, in our culture is at least there's an, an, an exclusivity. If you're saying you have a girlfriend, then what you're saying is she is the one whom you know, the two of you at least are heading one direction and nobody else is going there with you. And that's what this woman the Shulamite woman, once that's what she longs for, an exclusive relationship. And certainly that's what you should look for. Not in a kind of clingy way, but a way which it's really saying that even the act of making love is such a, an intimate thing that it's between the two of you and nobody else. Something else that's very interesting about her, if you look at verse 6, she's concerned about her appearance. Verse 5, rather, dark am I yet lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. Now, 
Here's where the cultural stuff comes in. We, using a good Scots phrase, we are peely-wally, many of us, and we're even stupid enough to pay fortunes to go to sunbeds that give us cancer just so that we can look dark. We get the tangled effect that many people want, well, the skin, you know, to, to have a tan. I think it's, it's just really, really important to be tanned. In this culture, that wasn't the case. In this culture, actually, the lighter you were, the more beautiful you were considered, because if you were dark, it was because you'd been outside and you, you'd been working. And that's what she says here. Look at verse 6. She says, Basically, my brothers were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I, I have neglected. She was a hard-working girl. This was a peasant girl. And she, she's got the skin of a farm girl, a working girl. And she's saying, I'm dark. I'm dark, and yet I'm lovely. Beauty is skin deep. And here's a, a woman who's beautiful in lots of ways. She's a hardworking woman, even if it has meant that her complexion is not the ideal that her culture would ask for. She's blackened by the sun. She's concerned by her appearance. I would like to be able to say that appearance doesn't matter, but you all know that it'd be lying. When you go out with somebody, you are concerned about how you look. And if you turned up for a date with somebody and they hadn't bothered at all, then you just think, I can't, you know... Who's going to be bothered with them? But what matters in terms even of appearance is here's a woman. Why was she like this? Why was she dark-skinned? She was dark-skinned because she was hard-working. And that was something that would, was attractive to her husband. Verse 7. She's concerned about her appearance. She's discreet. Now, what do we mean by that? Look at verse 7. It says, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? She wants to be with him. In fact, verses 7 and 8 are kind of a fairly playful poem with, a, with what we might call double entendres now, where she's kind of, her friends are teasing her and... Um, She's basically saying, where can I go and find him? Where can I be with him? He's looking after his flocks and so on. But what she's saying is, do I have to be like a veiled woman? Do I have to be like a prostitute? Somebody who looks as though they're looking for their next client. And she's saying, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to dress like that. I'm looking for my lover and I don't have to dress in a, in, in a provocative way in that sense. I think that that's an aspect of, of how we dress that is quite important. And we, again, need to think about it. Now, of course, you get all kinds of theories and extremes about that. You get people who say, well, I mean, if you want, in our culture, if you want to see that, um, the big argument that exists in France at the moment about the burqa, the reason that an Islamic woman is to be covered from head to toe, if it's a very strict Islamic woman, is so that she won't be sexually attractive to any man other than her husband. We don't have that, thankfully. But sometimes you wonder and you think, why dress like that? 
Why wander round on a winter's night in Scotland at sort of one o'clock in the morning when it's freezing cold and pouring rain as though you're on a beach in Barbados? Why? I was meant to be very attractive. Do you know what they call some of the clubs here? Cattle markets. The market. I've heard some guys talking about, let's go to the market. Because the women, they say, are just there. Why, why would someone want to make themselves quote-unquote desirable in that way? And There's a certain aspect in which we have to be quite careful about how we dress. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all walk around, oh, sorry, we, meaning women, not men, <laughs> we walk around in long flocks, frocks and, you know, um, keep as much covered as possible and all that kind of stuff. But the biblical teaching about modesty is actually a very good teaching and a very helpful teaching. And here's this woman, she says, I don't want to be like a veiled woman, I don't want to be like a prostitute. I will find him. Last thing I'll say about her is she smells nice. Verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. Scent plays an important part. We'll say more about that. Let's go on to the man. Um, where's Emma Jane, actually? Is she here? Lost her. Did you? No. She was going to bring me something, and she didn't. The man. Let's go back. Verse 13. The first thing we'll say about the man is that he smells nice, too. I'd asked Emma Jane uh, to, we've, we've got some links somewhere in the house, not mine, but <laughs> have you seen those adverts for the sort of links effect, that the idea is that you're a young man and you spray these chemicals on your body and all these women find you completely irresistible. Not quite as daft as it sounds, because actually you'll find in the Song of Songs that is mentioned several times. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Now, what, what myrrh did was, as it warmed, it gave off this beautiful smell. And what she's really saying is my husband is my fiancé. Some people argue at this point, but whatever it is, my husband, my, 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 my lover, he, he's like perfume. Now, what's a basic principle there? And this is... This is quite hard to say in one sense. Generally, women don't like slobs. And men who just can't be bothered with themselves. Now, you can go to the extreme. There's not many of us here very metro. and probably wouldn't want to be, but... Men looking after themselves, being clean and washing. It's a basic thing that, that is being actually commended. She's saying... As you, you smell a delicious aroma, you know what it's like if, maybe, I don't know tonight, but if you go out tonight, quite often on a Sunday night, you can smell the kebabs coming from just down there. And it's a fantastic smell. And if you're a strict Sabbatarian, it's something that really tempts you to break the Sabbath because it's, it's a great smell. Or you go into the bakery, and you smell the bakery, it's a fantastic smell. She's using that same kind of thing and she's saying, my man smells really good. And that is just a, a kind of thing suggesting this man is, or her, her, her king, is irresistible. There are men who think that no matter how they dress, no matter what their personal hygiene, no matter what they do, 
that they're the man and the woman's got to like them and she should be all pretty but he should never ever bother. Well, you are probably going to be a sad and lonely bachelor for a very, very long time if you have that attitude. It was, it was important to look after their appearance. And in terms of a relationship, it's not an unimportant thing. He has a good name, though. She goes back, if you go back to verse 3, your name is like perfume poured out. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. She's addressing the man. She's saying, I like your cologne. I like your aftershave. I like how you smell. But your name is more important to me. Other people admired the king. She liked that. No wonder the maidens love you. But you're mine. Character, name, reputation, standing before others, the spiritual side, that is hugely, hugely important. If you are a young woman and you are looking for a young man, then it is extremely important where he stands in terms of his own character and where he stands as a Christian. That, of course, is true the other way. A lot of these things apply both ways, but particularly here. Let me say this as well, that there are young men who say that they are Christians, but whose behavior is, is not appropriate to a Christian at all. And what you should be looking for is a man who shows Christian qualities, the depth and the love and the strength of character. Find that you find gold dust. He's a man who has a good name. A good name is to be desired more than all riches. Then he speaks affectionately. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. I liken you, my darling, to a mare. Um, the term darling occurs frequently in the book. For some of us, from our culture, if, if you're from Scotland, it's a Scottish culture, I think we manage affectionate words like hen. Uh, if in England it's duck. I mean, we're, we're, we find saying affectionate, being, being, speaking affectionately quite difficult. I listened to Mark Driscoll and I go, oh yeah, right, you're all American. You know, come on up, honey bun, and just, oh, blah, you know, it just makes you want to, but, but. Men speaking, there are men who speak very affectionately, and I'm not mocking that at all because we should speak affectionately, and I confess my own sin in that. He calls her my darling. He, he speaks to her openly of his love for her. We, we tend to have the folded arm, oh, you know that I love you. Except we don't even say that. We just say, well, it's got to be assumed I married you, didn't I? That's, again, an attitude that exists. But he speaks affectionately. Now, I've got to say something about this mare. I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Put that on your valentine in a couple of weeks' time. <laughs> what is he saying? You, you learn about this very simply. 1 Kings 4.26. Solomon had 4,000 stoles for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. 1 Kings 10.26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. Now, you wouldn't like to be compared to a horse, but for Solomon, it was a huge compliment. Why? Because Egyptian horses were the best horses in the world, and he got his horses from Egypt. They were noted for their beauty, for their grace, 
for their nobility. And he's doing two things here. He's saying, first of all, how attractive you are. And I know this may not sound, again, it doesn't sound so romantic to say you're more attractive to me than my horses. But he's, he's, he's using, he's saying, just how stunningly beautiful you are. But there's also something that's, that's almost a joke in verse 9 where he says, you're, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. The problem with that is mares were never harnessed to chariots, only stallions. Because if a mare became harnessed to one of the chariots amongst all the stallions, then you imagine the trouble that that caused. And he's really saying about his wife, you are so stunningly beautiful and so stunningly attractive that if you were a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh, the whole place would go wild. He's basically saying, you drive me wild. In other words, you have the lynx effect, but he's saying it in a much more poetic way than, um, than we would say. He's telling her how attractive she is. There's maybe a wee hint there for um, some of you young men in terms of your courting abilities. Um, the worst I've ever heard, and I did actually hear it, and I thought you'd only hear this on a Rabsi Nesbit show. A guy coming up to a woman and saying, get your coat, you're pulled. <laughs> oh, just, it's, it was just so gross. But here, he's being, he's, he's speaking affectionately and he's saying how attractive she is. Sometimes, guys, you've just got to say it. You're sitting there waiting for a girl who you're very interested in and you're thinking about and even say that you're praying about, but you never tell her anything. Why? Because you fear you might get rejected. So what? You might get rejected. You don't know until you try. And sometimes you do have to tell someone how attractive you find them or whatever. And I think when you're in a relationship with somebody, that's always a, a good thing to do. Verse 11, the other thing is the man provides in this way. Not, you know, me, Tarzan, you, Jane, and I'm going to provide you with the bread and so on. But there's a particular thing that she had. It says, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. She was conscious, apart from the fact that she was dark, she was poor, she was conscious she didn't have a great deal of jewelry. And he says to her, we'll provide you with that. We'll provide you with the earrings of gold studded with silver. Out of his great wealth, he will provide for her. And again, that's part of the relationship that you are caring for and providing for one another. So in these first 14 verses, and by the way, if you went into verse 15, you'd see the man again, how beautiful you are, my darling, oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. This, in this, these first 15 verses of this, of this love poem, you're seeing some indication of how the Bible is showing the, this relationship and what people should be looking for. We can be very, very, very cynical about romantic love. Really cynical. Um, I can be as cynical as anybody else. Don't. 
Don't God gave us the pleasure of getting to know one another and he gave us this, this idea of marriage and of an exclusive relationship. And that will happen to the majority of you. It may not happen to all. If it happens to you, make sure it's based along the lines that we're, we're going to see here and some of what we've seen already. Don't accept the standards of our culture and our society. And you may feel, I'm not like that, or I'm, you know, you have the sense, I'm not beautiful, why would anyone say I was beautiful, or I'm not very good at speaking, on all these different kinds of things. You just, you just do it. You just love and share and, and provide people with what they want. And those of us who've been married for many years, we know that we've failed in this in, in so many different ways. But that's the great thing about the exclusive relationship. The exclusive relationship is saying whatever. We are bound together. We are committed to one another. And that's what we should look for. Now, having said all that, how do, well, how do we do this in terms of Christ and the church? Now, the important thing to remember is it's an illustration, not an analogy. In other words, the purpose of this passage is not primarily to say, well, I'm going to teach you about Jesus Christ and the church, and this is what, this is, this is what it's an analogy of. It's a song about love, but then it's a song about love within the context of married, marriage, and the relationship between Christ and his people, the greatest illustration of that is the relationship between a husband and wife which is why, I've called, of course, Paul uses that in Ephesians 5. And I think it's perfectly legitimate taking this as an illustration to show how this applies in terms of uh, our relationship to Jesus Christ. And please don't regard these two things as being completely, um, or this being completely disingenuous or being completely opposite. I don't think they are. And let me also say this, and there's another connecting point here. And this won't go down well either for many people. If you're going to have an exclusive relationship to somebody, it actually can be quite hard. And you need to be connected at the most important points in your life. Yes, you need a physical attraction. Yes, you need compatibility in different ways, emotional compatibility and so on. But if you're a Christian, you need to marry in the Lord. You need to marry another Christian. And if you're only going to marry a Christian, then don't tease people by going out with them. You go out with another Christian. And that creates all kinds of problems for lots of people because they say, well, there aren't enough Christian men. Or um, somebody complained to me last night there weren't enough women at the Cayley. So who knows? Sometimes it can, it can work both ways. But it is very important that our primary relationship in life is our relationship with Christ. If we cannot share that with the person that we love, the person that we are committed to, the person we are married to, then the marriage is going to be extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. Sometimes people get married and then they're converted afterwards. And Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians. But you, if you're looking, and you should be looking, as I said, for a partner, then if you're a Christian, you look for a godly woman or a godly man. And you work out what that is. And if you find someone like that, they are gold dust. They are absolute gold dust. So let me just say something about 
how it, this applies in general in terms of Christ and the church. And it kind of changes the pitch a little bit. Verse 3, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume, your name is like perfume poured out. Just as the beloved finds her lover attractive, so the Christian finds Christ attractive. Attractive in the sense of this. We're not obviously talking about physical. We're talking about how we are drawn to Jesus Christ. There is something in us, or rather there's something in him that draws us to him. He is altogether lovely. He is, in that sense, he is the one who is irresistible. We talk about irresistible grace. Christ's grace draws us to himself. Verse 6, we may feel unattractive, dark am I, yet lovely. We may feel that we are not worthy of him, but he makes us attractive. He, he adorns us. Look at verse 11. We make you earrings of gold studded with silver. Christ, remember how the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ, that our righteousness is like filthy rags, and he takes our filthy rags and he gives us his righteousness and we, he, he adorns us with his jewelry, with his beauty. That imagery is one that is very, very important because some of you may be sitting here just now and you're thinking spiritually and in every other way, I am an ugly person. I'm so hateful. I've done so much. I'm so bitter. I'm so cynical. I'm so cold. I'm just so ugly. If you've ever felt that you are really, really ugly, um, I, I joke about it a lot. I've always known I wasn't handsome. You know, I don't know why, because I'm not, but it was, it was, it was something you, 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 for me, it never really bothered me all that much psychologically, but I've had friends, both male and female, for whom their physical appearance just made them, they just felt so bad. They just felt so ugly. They just felt so awful. And sometimes you see people who are kind of dull within themselves and their eyes are dull and their whole appearance as well because they feel that and it goes round and round and round in circles and again a kind of pit and a, a cycle of depression. But then something happens. Somebody loves them. Somebody thinks that they're beautiful. Somebody likes them for themselves. And what you know is happening as you say this, oh, they're blooming. It changes. Everything changes. Well, spiritually and emotionally and psychologically and within ourselves, we can feel we are just so ugly. And Christ comes and he clothes us in his beauty. And that's one of the most beautiful pictures of what it is to be a Christian, that we, we have the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ upon us. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not ugly because you have the beauty of Christ upon you. Verse 7, where uh, tell me you whom I love where you graze your flock and so on. That's just saying that the one we want to be with is Christ. We long to be with Christ. We long to know Christ. It's like uh, the quote I gave from John Owen this morning where he talks about how as Christians, we need to have this desire to be with Christ. And then maybe one other thing um, that I say in this respect. 
And that is, we are to be, as 2 Corinthians 2 verses 14 to 16 says, we are the perfume of Christ. We are the aroma of Christ. Just as a perfume attracts, it's, it's, a, it's a stunning effect that it has. So, Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, Christians living for Jesus Christ, there is something about Christ which goes with us wherever we are. And to some people, yes, we are the stench of death. But to other people, we are the, we are the aroma of Christ. And what does that perfume do? That perfume is calling you to belong to that person. And it's just an incredible privilege we have as Christians to be able to have the God within us so that people might be drawn to Jesus Christ. How many times have I heard somebody's testimony where, which went along the lines of, I wasn't all that religious, I wasn't all that interested, but I knew that person, that person, and that person. And when I saw what they had and how it affected their life and who they were because of it, I wanted it. I wanted Jesus because I saw what he did for them. So I, th I think it's perfectly fair and right for us to consider in those terms. And in reality, of course, that is the more important thing. Your relationship with your partner, your relationship with your wife or your husband, or your potential relationship with a potential wife or husband, it's important, but it will end. In heaven, there isn't a marriage. But your relationship with Christ is far more significant. As I say, please don't put these two things over and against one another. They, it's, it's, it's complementary. But in that sense, there are two levels to this song. And the, the level of illustration, if you like, is one that goes just so profoundly deep into our hearts and souls. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us as we reflect upon it. May each of us know what it is to belong to you. We thank you that you are the one who, who loves us and provides for us. Lord, I pray for those of us who are married and who you have blessed with wives or husbands, that you would help us to be faithful, to be committed, to love, that you would forgive us when we fail in that way. And I pray for um, those here who are looking for a wife or husband. Those whom you call to be single, you grant that gift. Lord, thank you for them. May they know your blessing and guidance in that calling. Those who are unsure, Lord, may you help them to know. And I pray that uh, our young people here especially that when they get married, it would be in you and that it would be for godly couples and families so that your cause may be extended and your kingdom built up. Help each one of us as we reflect upon these things in your name.